The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. I invite you to open your Bibles to John 15 for the last time where you're going to finish up this chapter today. And I don't know about for you, but for me personally, journeying through John 15 has been an awesome journey. Uh, John 15 has felt for me a little bit like a, a bit of a pregame speech. You know when the coach like gets all his players together and he's going to get them psyched up before they go out onto the field? It, it's been like Jesus throughout this chapter has been psyching up his disciples, including us, for how we are to live in this hour. It's what our Lenten series is called, In This Hour. It refers to the hour of Christ has arrived for him to die, rise, and ascend. And then we live in this hour without him physically present, and we're called to live on mission for him. What does that look like? That's what Christ is unfolding for us in 15 and 16. Here's what it, what it looks like, and what he said to us thus far is it looks like abiding in him. We're like a branch. He's the vine. He's going to pour into us everything we need. To be his people in this hour, just like a vine pours its life into a branch so that the branch bears fruit, so Christ pours his life into us. He'll pour into us his peace so that we bear the fruit of peace. That's different in this hour. He'll pour into us his joy so that we bear the fruit of joy. That's different in this hour. And He will pour into us his self-sacrificial love so that we bear the fruit of self-sacrificial love love. That's different in this hour. And that's what we dove into last week. How are we to live in this hour? We are to love one another as Christ has loved us, sacrificially, transformationally, missionally. And, and when we got to the end of that last week, that, that felt to me, it felt like the pinnacle of the pregame speech. Love each other sacrificially, transformationally, missionally, like, like we're, we're there, I'm psyched up, I'm ready to head out onto the field as Christ tells us how to love missionally. This is our mission. Show the world what my love looks like. Invite them into that love. All right, pregame speech done. I'm sufficiently psyched. Let's do this thing. But Jesus' pregame speech isn't over. And it's about to take a very interesting turn. Like he may have just pumped us up about loving one another and inviting the world into that, but he wants us to know that as we do that, that love might not be returned. John 15, look at verse 18. If the world hates you. Just feels like it comes out of nowhere, right? We're just talking about love. If the world hates hates you. No, I want you to know something. This entire passage, Jesus wants us to know something. He wants us to remember something. He's going to call that word to mind several times. If the world hates you. Know that it hated me before it hated you. Well, that'll kind of take the wind out of your missional sails, won't it? Like, abide in me. Yeah. Bear the fruit of joy. Yeah. Peace. Yeah. Love. Yeah, they're going to hate you for it. I'm out. <laughs> like, invite the world into my love, and they will 
hate you. And Jesus doesn't just say that the world will hate us. He gives us reasons why. Like he keeps talking about it. He's going to give us at least three reasons why the world hates us. Why would he do that? He tells us why he's doing that. If you look down to verse 1 of chapter 16, I'm just going to ask you to ignore that chapter break today. John did not put it there. Chapters, verse numbers, those weren't added until way later. Ignore it. Verse 1 of chapter 16, he tells us why he's telling us. He says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. How's that supposed to work? Like, seems to me, I know this may be a bit of a stretch, but it seems to me that falling away is precisely what this news would cause. Like, giving me all the reasons the world will hate me doesn't keep me from falling away. It pushes me towards it. Like, I don't want in this thing. That, doesn't it do that? Jesus doesn't think so. In this hour, when Christ followers will experience hate from the world, not might, they will, it's not the only thing we'll experience, but they will experience hate from the world. In this hour, Jesus thinks we need to know why. And that somehow that will give us endurance. Through telling us why he's providing the power, all of this is about him providing power for us to live in this hour, right? Abiding in him. So he provides the power for peace, joy, love, and now the power for endurance. The power to make it to the end, even when you go about with my peace, my joy, and my love, and you get rejected for it. How are you going to endure through that? He, he thinks we need to know why we're going to be hated and rejected, and that, through that, he will be providing the power for endurance in our mission. He'll be providing the power for us to keep on sacrificially loving each other and inviting the world into that love. So, let's trust Jesus for just a moment this morning and let's try to see the two things he is showing us. First, why will the world hate us? He's going to give us three reasons. Let's see them. Hear him out. And secondly, how does Jesus telling us about the world's hate help us endure? How does that work? Those are our two primary questions. We're going to spend most of the time on the first one because that's where Jesus spends most of his time. So, first, why will the world hate us? I mean, we want to show them self-sacrificial love, right? We want to invite them into the self-sacrificial love of Jesus. Why would they hate us for that? Jesus gives three reasons. Reason number one, the world hates you because you belong to a different kingdom. The world hates you because you belong to a different kingdom. Look at verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, in other words, don't go get in a big head thinking you're better than the world. I chose you out of it. You used to be there. But I did something graciously, lovingly. I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. The world Cosmos in Greek. We've encountered this word all throughout the Gospel of John, and most of the time it refers to creation in rebellion against God, especially humanity. 
Most of the time when we hear that phrase, the world, not every time, but most of the time it's talking about humanity and rebellion against God. A couple of examples, John 1 and verse 10. Christ was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Christ was in the cosmos that rejected him, rebelled against him. He'd made it, but it still rejected and rebelled against him. And so it did not, they did not know him. But he came anyway, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Rebellious humanity that rejects him. He so loved the world that he gave his only son. For Jesus says quite explicitly in John 8.23 to his brothers, you are of this world. I am not of this world. Christ is not of this world. That is, he's, he's not in rebellion against God. But all of us are. We're born as a part of this kingdom of rebellion, this kingdom of corruption. And God loves us anyway. So he sends his son into the world of rebellion, not to condemn it, but in order to save. And Jesus looks at his disciples right here, and he looks at you and at me, and he says, I chose you out of the world. By my sheer grace, I saved you, lavished love upon you. In the words of Colossians 1.13, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. You belong to this kingdom, but I've saved you, I've chosen you out of it. By my grace, by my love, you didn't deserve it. I've rescued you, and I've transferred you from this kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of my marvelous light. It's, it's what he's done. You belong, if you love Christ, treasure Christ, your faith is in Christ, you belong to a different kingdom. And that kingdom has a totally different culture. Is that not what's meant by the phrase, you are no longer of the world? You're not of a culture in rebellion against God. If you were, the world would love you as its own. Because your way of life would affirm their way of life. But your life is shaped by Christ's kingdom. You live within a kingdom culture, and that feels like a critique to a culture in rebellion against God. Do you see how that works? When uh, we, we encounter this all the time. When, when my daughter, Kara, she's my firstborn, when, when she was born, um, I remember encountering some awkward situations with mine and Holly's parents. Things that I did not quite understand. We would be talking to them about Karis and things we were doing, and and the weirdest things would seem to offend them. Like, like we told them about a strategy we were using to get Karis on like a feeding and sleeping schedule. And, and they immediately launched into this defense of on-demand feeding and how things were different when we were their kids and, and they did the best they could, but they're sorry if they screwed us up and we need therapy. And like, whoa. Well, and, and, and what began to occur to me is I realized that any time Holly and I made parenting decisions that differed from what our parents had done, it felt like a critique to them. Like we were saying they had done things 
wrong. We all know this feeling, right? Like one of your friends tells you they're not on social media, and you immediately start defending why you're on social media. Well, I mean, yeah, it's really bad for society, and I'm not an addict or anything. I just have to keep up with my out-of-town family, and, like, I'm not checking it right now while we're talking. Our parents, you run into a homeschool family. I know, because you run into me. And all of a sudden, you got to be like, the public school system in this area of town is really good, and blah, 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 blah. Or it can happen the other way around. I run into you, and I'm like, uh, we really do school our kids. There really is structure. They're learning things. Uh, they're not socially awkward that much. Um, <laughs> like, like we, we do this. When we encounter someone who does life differently than us, it often feels like a critique. Often it's not, but sometimes it is. And when a world whose way of life centers around self, when that runs up against a kingdom culture of self-sacrifice, that threatens their entire way of life. Or it should. When the world encounters how we use money, it should feel like a critique. We should use our money self-sacrificially for the good of others and the spread of the gospel. Use it to love the world. Invest in the spreading of the kingdom. Invest in God's kingdom versus building our own. And when the world encounters that, it should rub them the wrong way. Threaten their way of life. When the world encounters how we use our careers for for the love and the honor and the glory of God, not for self-advancement, but for the advancement of the kingdom, it should feel threatening. When the world encounters how we do retirement, not, not as a time of self-indulgence to try and achieve a little piece of personal heaven, but as a new phase of life for ministry and self-sacrifice when you have time and resources like you've never had before to sacrifice for the spread of the gospel. When the world encounters a kingdom culture, to the kingdom culture to which we belong, totally upside down to their own, it feels like a critique to them, like a threat to their own way of life. And Jesus says, this is why they hate you. This is why they persecute you. Even kill you. You experienced this as a teenager, right? Peer pressure. There was something your entire group of friends decided to do and you wouldn't do it, so eventually you're ostracized and you're not in anymore because the way you live feels like a critique to them and they hate it. Do we, as believers in Jesus, experience hatred, persecution, dare I say, martyrdom? Not really. Globally, yes, but not really in our Western American setting. It's increasing a little bit. 
we don't experience it that much. And we tend to think, stay with me, hear me clearly, I'm going to get emails about this, but I'm going to say it anyway. We tend to think that the reason we don't experience those things is because we have freedom of religion here. Speaking very specific in the United States. And hear me, that's part of it. Part of it to be sure. But could, I'm just asking you to consider, could part of it also be, the reason we don't experience hatred, persecution, martyrdom, could part of it also be because we don't pose a threat to the culture of our world? Could it be because we blend in with it? That we use money the same way, our careers the same way, our possessions the same way, we look the same. Hear me, I'm not saying that we should seek out being hated, we should seek out persecution, we should seek out martyrdom, but I am saying that Jesus says it is inevitable if we live belonging to a different kingdom. 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus says the world will hate you because you belong to a different kingdom. He doesn't stop there. He gives us another reason. Reason number two. The world hates you because you belong to a different king. The world hates you because you belong to a different king. It's a real cheery message, right? Like when the Scripture was done being read earlier. You just couldn't wait to say thanks be to God. You remember when we were all laughing a moment ago in illustration? Hang on to that. Gonna need it. The world hates you because you belong to a different king. John 15, look at verses 20 and 21. Remember, I told you he's going to bring that up a lot. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Jesus just spoke that back in John chapter 13 and in verse 16 when he was washing the disciples' feet. He said, a servant's not greater than his master. In other words, just like I sacrificially love you, you should also sacrificially love one another because you're not greater than me. So you should humble yourselves. He's using that same principle, but he's setting it in a much different context. He's flipping the coin on us. In other words, one side of the coin was you should love like I love, and the other side of the coin is expect the same response that I get. That's what he says, is it not? Servants not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, and they did, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, and some of them did, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. All these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because you belong to me, in other words. Because you belong to a different king. I grew up as an Atlanta Braves fan. Most of you know that if you've been here for any amount of time at all. Levi is playing for the Braves this year. How fantastic is that? All of my gear does double duty now. It's wonderful. I grew up as a Braves fan, and even before I understood the game of baseball, I understood this. We hated the New York Mets. 
And after 1991, we hated the Minnesota Twins. Still bitter. And I also understood that everyone hates the Yankees. Like That's just the way it works. But the amount of animosity that I could muster as a small child for people I had never met just because they wore different colors, different teams' colors, it was amazing. And as Christians, we wear the colors of a different king than the rest of the world. And how people feel about our king is how they will feel about us. Positive or negative. Jesus says if they persecuted me, that's what they're going to do to you. Because I'm your king. And you wear my colors. You're covered in my blood. But... Also, if they kept my word, responded to me positively, they're going to keep yours. How people react to Jesus is made manifest in how they react to those who represent him. John's going to take that theology and blow it wide open in his first epistle and talk a whole lot about how whether or not we love God is displayed and how we love or don't love one another. How someone feels about King Jesus is revealed, made manifest, in how they feel, act towards those who represent him. And it's essential that we recognize there are positive and negative reactions to us as the people of God when we show forth the love of Christ, when we share the gospel. It's essential that we recognize that because some people... Some people think that if you're truly sharing the love of Christ, if you're truly sharing the gospel, then you should only experience positive reactions. They look at the state of opinion in America right now about the church. I'm talking about our context. I'm aware the church is much larger than America. We're in the minority. If you don't know, the majority of the church of Christians exists in the global south. The majority of the church is brown, not white recognize all of that, but talking about our context, there are people who think that if you're truly sharing the love of Christ, you should only get positive reactions. They say, well, you know, if we just learn to love like Jesus loved, everyone would be drawn to that. And they'll take verses out of context where Jesus says things like, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people unto myself. If we just love like Jesus, then the world wouldn't hate us so much. Really? Jesus says that loving as he loves is precisely the reason the world will hate us. I mean, the world crucified Christ. Perhaps Jesus should have learned to love a little bit more like Jesus. People wouldn't have had such negative reactions to him. No, here's the deal. If you only experience positive reactions when you share the gospel, then you're probably not sharing the gospel. Conversely, we can flip that. Some people think that if you're truly sharing the gospel, you should only get negative reactions. They use passages like the one in front of us today to justify that conclusion. Jesus said we would be hated. I'm out there in the culture, standing faithful and firm, sharing the gospel, telling people they're a bunch of sinners going to hell, and they all need to repent and be holy like me. 
I can't help it that they hate me like Jesus said they would. No, if you only experience negative reactions when you share the gospel, then you're probably not being faithful. You're probably just being a jerk. Because when we truly share the gospel, we will experience both acceptance and rejection. Both. Because people accept and reject Christ as king. And that's Jesus' whole point in verses 20 to 21. That people's response to us ultimately reveals their response to Christ. If they hate us, it's because they hate Christ. If they, and we belong to a different king. If they, if they love us, it's because they love Christ and belong to the same king. How people react to us is, is revealing how they react to so that leaves me asking the question, why is it that some people hate Jesus? And that takes us to the third reason he gives us for the world's hate. The world hates you, one, because you belong to a different kingdom, two, because you belong to a different king, and three, the world hates you because your king reveals that they belong to a kingdom of corruption. The world hates you because your king reveals that they belong to a kingdom of corruption. Look at verses 22 to 24, the most difficult verses in this passage. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. I don't like that translation, personally. The word guilty is not in the Greek. In the Greek, it literally just says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. The word is echo. It means to have, to hold. They wouldn't be holding, having, sin. But now they have, there's a word play there, they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have sin. Same thing right there. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Here's some really puzzling verses. I'm going to take my best stab at them. We're not Catholic. I'm not your Pope. I'm not infallible. Take it. Test it. Hold on to what is good. I am more certain, personally, I am more certain of what Jesus is not saying right here. Okay? He's not saying that the world was not guilty of sin at all until he showed up. He is not, like the world was sinless, but because he came and they heard his words and they saw his works and they rejected him, now they're sinful, now they're culpable, now they're guilty. That's why I don't like the fact that the ESV throws the word guilty in there, because I think it makes it even more confusing. Now, Jesus is not saying everyone is in a state of innocence, not responsible for how they respond to me until they hear about me. If that was the case, then the worst thing you could do is share the gospel. Because everybody's okay until you open your mouth. And now they have a chance of being condemned. So evangelism in that situation looks more like going up to somebody. Has anyone ever told you about Jesus? No, I've, I've never heard about Jesus. If anyone tries, cover your ears and run away screaming just saving that person's soul, man. I don't, 
I don't think that is what's going on. So what is Jesus saying? I think the end of verse 21, which we didn't really give much attention to earlier, I think it's essential to knowing what 22 through 24 mean. Verse 21, all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Because they do not know God the Father. They actually hate him. He's going to say that explicitly in verse 23. They don't know God. They hate him. That's why they hate me, and that's why they hate you. It's a chain reaction. And Jesus says that at the root of it all is hatred for God, a rejection of God, a rebellion against God. And people hate Jesus because encountering him exposes that rebellion. Maybe before they could hide it. But encountering Christ exposes it. The people that Jesus came to, this is who he's speaking about most directly within this context, so first century Israel. First century Israel claimed to love God. Throughout the Gospel of John, we've mostly been dealing with the religious leaders and the Pharisees, who are like the epitome of this claim to love God, to know him, to belong to him. And Jesus says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they could have just kept right on holding, having. They could have kept right on holding on to that excuse. Really, the Greek word there for excuse would be better translated pretense or false show. If I hadn't come and spoken to them, they could have just kept holding on to that false show, that pretense. That they loved God. But because I have come and spoken to them, now they are left holding the reality of their sinful rebellion. It's exposed. They don't really love God because I am God and they don't love me. Do you see how that works? It's like my daughter Talitha. Every time that we order Chinese, she insists that she loves egg rolls. Why? I don't know. Do you understand four-year-old logic? Because I haven't figured it out in my house yet. But she does this every single time. And so, every single time, I love egg rolls, by the way, so I always have one. And so every single time, eventually, in the course of this conversation, as she protests the fact that I will not share my egg roll, I call her bluff. I give her part of my egg roll. And she is confronted with an egg roll in the flesh. All pretense is gone. And she is left holding her sin. <laughs> her lie is exposed for all to see. She hates egg rolls, and everybody knows it. The Jews claimed to love God. He came in the flesh, and they rejected him. Not all. Don't forget what we've previously talked about. Some listened, some obeyed. And this isn't just true of the Jewish people. I'm not, not singling them out. I'm not being racist, and nor is John. This is an example of what happens with the world. That's why Christ is speaking in those terms. It, he came in the flesh. They rejected him, and their true rejection and rebellion of God was revealed. That's why Jesus says in verse 23, whoever hates me hates my father 
also. Encountering Jesus reveals the true corrupt condition of our hearts. We can't hide it anymore. No matter what pretense we lived under, no matter who you are in this world, no matter if you lived under a pretense of a claim to love God or a claim to be a good person or a religious person or a selfless person, it doesn't matter. Encountering Jesus through his words and his works will reveal the condition of our hearts towards God. It will reveal our rejection of his light and our love for our darkness. John 3.19, the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And we hate him for shining his light and revealing our corrupt hearts. Jesus said that explicitly in John 7, verse 7. The world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. We hate him for loving us. This starting to parallel what he says will happen with us, that we will be hated when we love. We hate him for loving us. What he is doing as the light of the world, exposing the true condition of our hearts towards God, what he's doing is, is loving. He loves us too much to leave us in the darkness. He shines his light to expose that we cling to a corrupt kingdom of darkness and death. He shines his light so that we might see, repent, and come to him and know light and life in him. He doesn't have to do this. He does it because he loves us and the world hates him for it. And the world will hate us for it. If we love like Jesus loved, if we love the world too much to leave it in darkness, we will be hated for it. Because the culture of this world is upside down. This world is convinced that the loving thing to do is to leave people in darkness. We have convinced ourselves that that's what love looks like. Not to point out darkness. No, you, you love your darkness. I'll love my darkness. I'll affirm yours. You affirm mine. And the loving thing to do is let everybody be king over their own corrupt kingdom. This is why our culture doesn't get Jesus. Because they don't get how light revealing a person's darkness could possibly be loving. And so if we carry that light into the darkness, they will not see us as loving, but as judgmental. Don't point out darkness and call it dark. It's upside down culture. The world hates you because your king reveals that they belong to a kingdom of corruption. I'm not saying we're better than the world, not at all. He revealed first to us that we belong to a kingdom of corruption. Saved us by his grace. I can't brag at all for being over here. He, it's by the sheer grace of God through faith, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I can't boast in anybody except Jesus who saved my stupid self. And I still can't figure out why. The world hates you because your king reveals that they belong to a kingdom of corruption. Great. Thanks a lot for the encouraging word, Jesus.
This was such an awesome pregame speech. In this hour, show the world my love. They'll hate you for it. Here are all the reasons why. Awesome. I'm pumped. Anybody else pumped and ready to like go out and live on mission? Loving the world and getting hated for it? So why did Jesus tell us all of this? I mean, obviously he wants us to know it, so he must think it's helpful in this hour. But how? It's our second primary question. We'll hit it very quickly. How does Jesus telling us about the world's hate help us in this hour? answer begins to unfold, I think, in verse 25. Look at it. But. It's the Greek word Allah. It means conversely. On the other hand. We're going to get three of these in the next verses. In other words, I've been telling you the world's going to hate you, but. 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 I need you to know this. But. The word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Here's the truth that I think Christ wants us to see right here. They will hate you, but remember I am king. I'm going to unpack it. They will hate you, but remember I am king. I'm in control. Is that not what he's saying right here in verse 25? What is happening right now is happening in accordance with my word. This is happening to fulfill my word. He quotes Psalm 69 and verse 4. It's a psalm that David wrote. And it was considered even by first century Jews to be a messianic psalm. In other words, they considered it not to just be about David, but to be about the coming Messiah. So it's about Christ. So whatever it says about David is even more true about Christ. And in this psalm, David says, they hate me without cause. If David was hated without cause, how much more so Christ? Jesus says that's what's happening. In other words, the world's hatred of me is not jeopardizing God's plan. It's part of it. What is happening right now is not because the world is in control, but because I am. This is happening because of my word. Let this remind you that I am king. They will hate you, but remember, I am am king over all. And that's not all. Look at verses 26 through 27. But, there it is again, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Second truth that I think Christ wants us to see right here, they will hate you, but remember this is my kingdom. They will hate you, but remember, this is my kingdom. In other words, I rule here. Is that not what he is saying right here? My mission will be done here because I will send my spirit to accomplish it. The world's hate may look strong, but it won't stop my mission that I will accomplish by my power through my people. In this hour, I'll send my spirit to bear witness about me, and he will do it through you. That's the logical connection between verses 26 and 27. The Holy Spirit will provide all the power for us to live as citizens of Christ's kingdom and bear witness about our king. Yes, the world will hate us, but remember, this is his kingdom. He's ruling here. No matter what it looks like, his mission will be accomplished, and he has promised to provide 
all the power that is needed for us to live as a citizen of his kingdom in this hour. That's precisely what he says in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 16. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But, there it is again, I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. In other words, they will hate you but remember sovereignty. They will hate you but remember sovereignty. Remember I told you this would happen. Don't let it surprise you. Remember I said it happens in accordance with my word because I'm king. Remember I said even though it happens, my mission will be accomplished because this is my kingdom. Remember that I am sovereignly in control and none of this, when they kick you out of the synagogue, when they drag you into courts, when they persecute you, when they even kill you thinking they're serving me, none of this is happening outside of my control. It's fulfilling my word. It should confirm to you that I'm king. It should confirm to you that you're a citizen of my kingdom. It should keep you from falling away. Shades, do you see the beautiful, ironic, upside-down nature of Christ's kingdom? The very thing that tempts us to think he's not sovereignly in control. The very thing that tempts us to think he's not sovereignly in control is the very thing that should confirm his sovereignty. Do you see that? The very thing that would tempt us to fall away is the thing that should keep us from falling away. In other words, when you look around the world in this hour, the very things that make you think God is not in control, God doesn't have this, this whole thing is falling apart, those very things are what should confirm Firm God's control for us and give us great confidence in our king and his kingdom because it's all happening just like he said according to his plan when things happen the way my parents told me they would that did not decrease my confidence in my parents it increased it that's what Christ is saying should happen I've told you I'm sovereignly in control, so when these things happen, let it increase your faith and your trust in me. It's just like the cross, is it not? The very heart of our faith? If ever there was a place where it looked like God was not in control, if ever there was a place where it looked like everything was falling apart, if ever there was a place where it looked like God had lost and the world had won, it was the cross. Yet our sovereign king was in control, winning through what looked like defeat. The cross is confirmation of the sovereignty of God. And your cross, if anyone comes after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Your cross is confirmation of the sovereignty of God in your life. The world will hate you, but remember sovereignty. Remember that the world's hatred doesn't win. It didn't win at the cross of Christ, and it doesn't win through your cross in your life. God wins through crosses. 
Through them, he makes his love known to the world. He made his self-sacrificial love known to the world through a suffering Savior. And he continues to make his self-sacrificial love known through suffering saints. The, The lost world might just catch a glimpse of a Savior who loved them enough to suffer even when they hated him. They might catch a glimpse of a Savior who loved them enough to suffer through a people who will love them enough to suffer even when they hate us. Shades, in this hour, do not let chaos, opposition, or the hatred of the world convince you that Christ has lost control. Do not abandon all hope and fall away. No, let these things be the very things that make you remember sovereignty. He said it would happen in the way it is happening. He he promised to provide all the power you would need to live showing the love of Christ to the world. In this hour, shades, don't forget. Remember, remember that we serve a sovereign Savior. He is our king, and we are citizens of his kingdom.